This episode of the Asia Rising podcast was recorded in front of a live Zoom audience. To find out more about our upcoming events, where you can listen in and even ask a question yourself, go to latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In its many successes and struggles, the Asian American community can be seen as a microcosm of the nation. Despite often being treated as a monolithic community, there is great diversity amongst the groups, and all are impacted by varying degrees by the current coronavirus emergency, the political climate, and the inflammatory rhetoric directed at Asian nations. As the United States approaches a divisive election during the year of a devastating pandemic, the Asia Rising podcast is pleased to welcome to its 150th episode, Chris Liu. Chris Liu served in the Obama administration as the Deputy Secretary of Labor and co-chair of the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you, Matt, for having me. So we are now a few weeks away from uh, the 2020 election, but it feels like the campaigning has been going on since about uh, November 9, 2016 in some ways. Can you tell me what it's like there at the moment and what you are going to be doing on election day and what you think is at stake? Well, look, I, you know, obviously I'm a partisan Democrat and I think there's certainly policy differences between Vice President Biden and President Trump. But I think more broadly, you know, our American democracy really is at stake. I mean, we have seen a president right now who has violated norms, if not laws, over the last uh, three and a half years, who has called the, the free press the enemy of the people, who has, you know, run roughshod over the rule of law, who has, you know, frayed our relations with our allies, and who I think has really, you know, employed racist rhetoric in a way that, you know, is unprecedented, at least in modern American history. And so um, if any of your listeners had a chance to watch the Democratic National Convention a couple of weeks ago, I think President Obama, you know, said it very well. Our democracy is at stake and who we see ourselves as a country. And, you know, the United States is, for better or worse, has always seen ourselves as, as a model for uh, democracies around the world. And I think you know, increasingly over the last three and a half years, you would have a hard time um, making that argument that we have been a model democracy. And so I think a second term of Donald Trump sends his country into a much different direction, you know, and I think that certainly has implications for the rest of the free world. When Joe Biden recently announced that Kamala Harris would be his running mate, there was a scramble of first headlines. And for a moment, I was quite surprised that, you know, there were a couple of quite a headline saying, hey, she's the first Indian American candidate as well. She's Asia's first candidate. And I thought about it for a moment and I've gone, oh yeah, of course she is. But that hasn't been a large amount of the conversation over there. So if elected, she'd be the first woman vice president, the first woman of color elected to that high office, but also being half Indian as well, the first Asian American candidate. So I wanted to know what that would mean from your perspective to the Asian American community. Well, I think it's huge. And I think, Matt, your, your reading of the initial press headlines were correct. I mean, there was so much that was made that she was a woman, so much that she was made that an African-American, uh, a little bit less initially about her being an Asian-American, Indian-American, which is significant in so many ways. You know, if you know anything about Senator Harris's upbringing, she was raised by an Indian mother. And yet her Indian mother told her that 
American society will look at you uh, as an African-American. Mm. Um, you know, in, in, in many ways, it sort of reminds me of Barack Obama, who was raised by a white mother, uh, but always understood that society would treat him as an African-American. So I think the initial headlines were unfortunate, but I think it speaks as much about how our society in the United States views race. But it is heartening to see maybe the second rounds of headlines talking about her Indian heritage and really is a great source of pride, not just for Indian Americans, but for all Asian Americans. And she has spoken, you know, very eloquently about her upbringing, about the Indian traditions that she's embraced, about her regular visits to vi- to see her relatives in India. So uh, it will be a landmark moment if she uh, becomes the vice president. Do you know uh, if that made a difference uh, amongst the Indian American community and amongst Indians abroad as well? Because Donald Trump has always been quite proud of the connection that he's had to India and to the Indian Americans and the support that he's had amongst that community. But I feel that this sort of announcement might just tip it back for him. Yeah, you know, and Matt, you started your podcast off by saying that the Asian American community in the United States is not a monolithic one. And what's notable is that among the different, let's say the the biggest, you know, five or six subgroups within Asian America, the one that's most democratic or one of the most democratic is Indian Americans. And so this was a group that was probably already, you know, supporting Democrats by an 80-20 margin. Mm. Uh, and so this was a heavily democratic group, but you are right that President Trump has made an effort uh, to reach out to Prime Minister Modi and, you know, obviously visited India and, and did an event with Modi in the United States as an effort, you know, really to try to peel off some of the support. I think it probably won't happen, obviously, in light of this pick, but I think as importantly, based on a lot of the other policies that this and rhetoric that this president has adopted, he probably never was going to win over many of them. Kamala Harris might now feel the need or be obliged or expected to speak for Asian American interests if elected. So during the Obama administration, you were co-chair of the White House Initiative on Asian American and Pacific Islanders. So do you have any insight into what she might expect? And I was just wondering if you could tell me a bit more about that experience and what you brought to the role. The way we approach it, I think, and again, I keep going back to your introduction, I think it's a recognition that you know, the Asian American community is not a monolithic community. You know, on balance, Asian Americans are healthier, wealthier, more established in this country than other minority groups. But that's not universal. And when you start to slice and dice the community, you see groups that are doing amazingly well, and you see other groups that are not doing well. And I think part of the task we had in the Obama administration with the White House Asian American Initiative Um, was to ensure that government services were reaching all of the different subgroups within the Asian American community. You'll recall in 2010, we had a big oil spill uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, it went on for about six months or so. It really devastated the local community. Some of the groups that were most affected by this were fishermen, immigrants from Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Laos. And when we sent government resources down to help these people, we quickly learned these are not people who generally spoke English. They were not used to dealing with the federal government. And so I think you really needed to send translators, people who are familiar with the community. And I think that was an important recognition that, you know, as powerful and uh, generally effective as the U.S. government is, we don't often hit the people most in need. And so that was one of the things we really focused on is making sure that services were available to everyone that needed them. 
also understanding the disparities within the community. You know, when President Obama signed the Affordable Care Act into law, one of the important um, innovations in that legislation was to require reporting on health outcomes, not just for Asian Americans, but for seven or eight different subgroups of Asian Americans so that we would know, well, what's happening with Korean Americans or Japanese Americans, and that's important. This concept of data disaggregation is necessary because if you don't know the problems in the community, you can't actually tailor government services. So I suspect she will continue those initiatives. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that the Obama administration uh, appointed more Asian Americans to more senior level positions than any other uh, uh, administration in history. And so I know she will be uh, conscious of the diversity efforts. Um, and then I think in general, you know, focusing on the issues that matter to all America, whether it's good jobs, whether it's good health care, sensible immigration policies. And I know that she's committed to all of that. So if we could turn now to the conversation to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, what has the experience of Asian Americans been during this crisis, uh, particularly with the blame attributed to China as the origin of the virus? Yeah, I mean, this has really been kind of a triple whammy that Asian Americans have faced, um, in particular those of lower income with worse um, health care. Like other people of color, they've been disproportionately impacted. We obviously in this country don't have universal health care. And so a lot of people who initially contracted the virus to not seek medical attention immediately. Those often tend to be poor people, people of color. And so our community has been disproportionately impacted from a health perspective, but also so many of the small businesses, the mom and pop restaurants and dry cleaners and businesses that people interact with on a day-to-day basis have had to close. Many of them will never, ever come back. And so you've seen particularly unemployment rates among Asian Americans skyrocket, bankruptcies among companies go up as well. But I think the really the one that just bothers me the most, and not that the other two are not important, is I just think the rise of anti-Asian rhetoric in this country. You know, words matter. And when the president of the United States uses phrases like China virus, Kung flu, he gives license to, frankly, a lot of racist people to use the exact same terminology. And that's not just the language, it's bullying. Uh, there's a group here in the United States that tracks anti-Asian hate incidents, and they've tracked about 2,300 in this country related to COVID directed at Asian Americans. And you hear these heartbreaking stories about Asian Americans, doctors and nurses who are treating patients, and they're being harassed by their own patients for allegedly giving them the virus. There are countless examples of Asian American kids being bullied and told to go back. And it's heartbreaking when you read these stories. The flip side of all of this, I think it really has galvanized the Asian American community politically. And I think people understand this is no ordinary election and a lot is at stake, not just for the country, but for our community. And it's not just uh, coronavirus issues as well. I guess you've got uh, trade wars that are going on are also going to be targeted towards the Asian American community for criticism and issues like technology theft. And to a lesser degree, I suppose, political interference. You've got a convenient whipping boy. Is that a good way to look at China? And that must reflect on the Asian American community at this time. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the history of Asians in America is not a particularly proud history. I mean, if you go back to the way that Japanese Americans were treated during World War II, obviously Korean Americans during the Korean War, Vietnamese during the Vietnam War, now increasingly the brunt of these attacks are going to be Chinese Americans. We need to understand that China is a competitor. 
They're an adversary. There are mm-hmm. times where we need to ally with them, but their interests are contrary more often than not to what the United States is. But there's a difference between what's happening in China. There's a difference between the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese Americans who have, are lawfully here, who are U.S. citizens, people like myself who were born in the United States. You know, and the fact that people would somehow question our loyalty to a country that we were born in. For me, I served 20 years of the federal government at the highest levels. Others who have served in the military, I mean, I think it's offensive. But look, that's the climate we operate in. And, you know, I suspect that will get significantly worse in the coming years as this competition between the United States and China grows. The next thing that I wanted to ask you about was trade, which is an aspect that you've dealt with directly. U.S. populism has rejected a largely pan-Asian trade Pacific agreement, so the TPP. So in order to save American jobs, they've been doing that. So do you think that this was the right strategy? President Obama uh, pushed forward the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And Mm. during my last year in office as the Deputy Secretary of Labor, I was on the road pitching the values of trade. You know, the important part about TPP was, you know, that it would not only open up important Asian markets for the United States, but it would be an important counterweight, frankly, to China. We think we got the right protections in there for labor and the environment. Obviously, you always want them beefed up more. But unfortunately, that agreement never got completed because of the presidential election. And I think it's unfortunate. I mean, look, we can have broader conversations about free trade and how free it actually is and what kind of protections you need and what the impact on U.S. workers is. And trust me, as the Deputy Secretary of Labor, I understand full well how previous trade agreements have not always stood up for U.S. workers. But I do think it was a missed opportunity in terms of our allies and our important trading partners uh, in Asia. This would have been, I think, a win-win in terms of you know, opening markets to U.S. farmers, to U.S. manufacturers, but as importantly, solidifying our relationships with these countries. And as I said, serving as a counterweight to China. Obviously, that's something this administration, the Trump administration, decided not to pursue. And I think you've seen now the impact of that, which is growing Chinese influence throughout the region. Do you think it's something that can be re-engaged with in the future? More broadly, Matt, the politics of trade have really you know, been upended here in the United States. Mm. Um, there used to be sort of a bipartisan consensus between some Democrats and some Republicans about the value of trade. And look, trade agreements have never been easy to get done, but you could always find kind of a common center on this. Uh, I think, frankly, as the Democratic Party has moved more to the left, as the Republicans have become more nationalist, that kind of core center that could get these things done, I think, has really gotten much, much smaller. You know, so I think it will be a challenge in general to get any trade agreements done, even under a Biden administration. Mm, Yeah, okay. So we're going to open up to questions at the moment. But one big part of the uh, the upcoming election has been the Black Lives Matters movement, and the unrest on that front. I was wondering where you see the Asian American role in that. And if they're being caught up in that movement, or if you're seeing the Asian American experience is as being something different to that. I mean, it's an interesting question, Matt. I mean, there's this myth here in the United States that Asian Americans are the model minority. It's frankly an offensive myth because I don't think it reflects reality, but I think it's also a way to create a wedge issue between Asian Americans, Hispanics, African Americans, other people of color. Mm. Uh, And the truth is, if you look at the history of civil rights in the United States, the gains that we have made as Asian Americans happened in part because of the civil rights movement that was led by African-Americans and and Hispanics. And so 
I've always thought that we need to stand in solidarity with all people of color. And I think you've seen that play out in some respect with Black Lives Matter. I've not seen any polling on this issue in terms of sympathy among Asian Americans uh, on this issue. I suspect there's a portion that feels as I feel, if one community of color is oppressed in some ways, that affects all of us. But I suspect there are plenty of other people who say, this doesn't affect me, so I'm not going to get involved. All right, we might take a couple of questions from the audience now. Um, The first one that I will throw to is um, Anna Song. Anna, if you could give your question to Chris. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris, for the, the insights you're sharing with us. I'm just curious to understand how in the US, Asian and Pacific Islanders seem to be grouped. You mentioned the White House Initiative, but also more socially, there's like Asian Pacific Islander Day, I believe, in the US and so forth. What are some of the historical strategic reasons for this that you are aware of? And do you think it's relevant to perhaps the Australian context where Pacific Islanders, a lot of them from New Zealand actually, are still politically quite marginalized and Asian communities, we need our strength in numbers to make more impact. And it's a fascinating question because if you look at even the term Asian Americans, that's really a term in the United States that we've started using over the last 40 years or so. If you go back to the 1960s, 70s, let's start by saying they would have called us Orientals. But leaving that aside, it would have been Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Korean Americans. You know, Asian Americans really kind of came into as a legal governmental term for how to classify this group of people. And the truth is, it's, it's never been an easy definition because we don't hail from one country. We certainly don't speak one language. It's dozens of countries, dozens of languages. Traditionally, there's been sort of a dichotomy between East Asians uh, and South Asians, like Indian Americans. And then really over the last 20 years, there's been kind of a growing awareness of Pacific Islanders. As somebody like me, I generally say Asian Americans because that's what I said growing up. Uh, But increasingly now we add Pacific Islanders to that. It's not a huge part of the community, but it's, it's, you know, it's important. You know, whether we're talking about people from the islands or native Hawaiians in particular, which is a whole nother subset of issues. And again, I think it goes back to what we've been talking about. Some of the Pacific Islander communities are the ones that are the most impoverished, the ones that have the greatest health care problems, educational issues, poverty issues. And I think, again, it's an important community to recognize because I think if they simply get lumped in with a larger group, people in government, I think, overlook their issues. All right, so uh, we might turn to Carmel Abrahams now. Carmel, can ask your question to Chris. Hi, Chris, thank you. Look, it seems that the gaming of the uh, democratic system by Republicans to their benefit has been pretty much laid bare that I don't think that this would have happened without you know, people being complicit with Trump. But what are the structural changes that you would be on your wish list to shore up democracy in, uh, in America that would be possible if the Democrats don't win the Senate? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think, look, we aren't, you know, in a pitch battle in the United States over voting rights in general. And it's not a new battle. I mean, look, obviously, you know, for a century, the issue of African-Americans being able to vote and, and being restricted in their voting rights, I think, has been a major issue. That continues to play out. I mean, you've got one party that is trying to get fewer people to vote and another party that's encouraging everyone to vote. Elections in the United States are run by 50 different states. And so some states require voter identification. Some states, you know, there are different residency requirements and it's complicated. What I would hope is that we come up with a system where 
We have universal voting standards. Um, we have universal rules on identification. Both parties agree to let everyone vote who wants to vote. Election day falls on a Tuesday for really no good reason in the United States. It's a work day for most people. It's not a national holiday. Voting is not compulsory in this country. There's no penalties like I think that there is in Australia for voting. We should all vote. It's your civic responsibility. And democracy improves when we have more people participating in the process. So, so I think in terms of what we need to do, I think obviously getting the voting right is one. Our voting systems, our machines are kind of like these old clunky systems from years ago. They're certainly in danger of being hacked if they have not already been hacked. It's problematic on that. I do think more broadly, you know, we have seen over the last three and a half years, a lot of the things that we thought were rules in our country are really just norms. And they're norms that are followed by leaders who've generally wanted to sort of stay within the traditions and conventions of our democracy. But what we have found is that if you have a leader who does not want to follow the rules and you've got a party in Congress, his party that doesn't want to hold him accountable, there's a lot you can get away with. I'll give you one small little example. I, I spent four years in the White House. If I had walked into the White House on any day wearing an Obama campaign t-shirt, I would have been escorted out of the White House promptly by the White House chief of staff. And if any of you saw the Republican National Convention two weeks ago, you would have saw President Trump accepting his nomination on the White House lawn with giant Trump-Pence signs on both sides of him. That is unheard of. I mean, the White House is the people's house. It's not supposed to be politicized. Anyway, it just shows in, in some ways some of these norms about ethics and conventions, I think, just need to be codified into statutes. Chris, you were talking about the uh, the differences to how Australia votes. Uh, we do have compulsory voting. We do get fined if we don't vote, and we vote on a weekend. But we also do get the bonus of a democratic sausage sizzle. So uh, <laughs> I, I think I think we win there as far as <laughs> as far as how to run an election. I've just got one final question with you before we wrap it up. In the new year, the dust has settled. Biden has won the election, and he's the new president of the United States. Let's say day two, because day one will give him a break. He's got other things to worry about. But day two, he gets on the phone to you and says, Chris, let's talk about Asian Americans. What do they need and what can I do? Have you got a list ready to go? And what's your top items? There are issues that are important to the Asian American community, but there are issues important to all Americans. I think the one thing that we've still not gotten right in this country is health care. You know, I was proud to be working for President Obama in the White House when we got the Op Affordable Care Act passed important piece of legislation that gave health care coverage to 23 million Americans, uh, provided protections for over 100 million Americans with pre-existing conditions. But it wasn't universal coverage. And it mm. wasn't the kind of universal coverage that most modern Western democracies have. And so the first thing I'd say to, to President Biden is we need to make improvements to the Affordable Care Act, because that not only helps Asian Americans, it helps all Americans. And health care is not just a policy issue, it's a moral issue, it's an economic issue, and so we need to get that right. I think in terms of the Asian Americans specifically, I'd say two, I think one is increasing our representation in the federal government. In the history of the United States, we've only had six cabinet members who have been Asian American, and two of them are the same person, actually. So you're really only talking about five different people that have served in cabinet positions, the senior level cabinet positions. And we need to do better on that because I do believe, and I know Joe Biden believes this as well, government runs best when it's represented by 
the diversity of people in the country. So I think we need to get that right. And I think the last thing I'd say is we need to get immigration reform done in this country. It's often in the United States seen as an issue that deals with uh, Hispanic Americans, but it really is an Asian American issue as well. You know, when we think about undocumented people here in the United States, uh, one-tenth of them are actually Asian Americans. Uh, When you think about people wanting to emigrate here on family visas or skilled workers, largely it's Asian Americans as well. And so I know full well the history of the 19th century in the United States was not particularly kind to Asians trying to emigrate to the United States in terms of becoming citizens. And I think what has really made us the leader in so many areas over the last 50 years is this influx of Asians to this country. So we need to continue to make sure those doors are open to people who want to come to this country. And frankly, it's great for the country as well. Mm. Yeah, I think I think it says a lot that a lot of the items there on your checklist wouldn't just benefit Asian Americans. It would benefit uh, migrants. It would benefit people Absolutely. of color. It would benefit America as a whole. I'll make sure that Joe gets a copy of this interview, so he's uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's got your list to work on. All right, uh, that's all the time that we've got for today. Chris, thank you very much for your time. It's been a, a great pleasure to talk to you tonight. Thank you for the wonderful conversation, and thanks to all of you who were participating live in this. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They help my job performance and are thusly very appreciated. You can follow us both on Twitter. Chris is at ChrisLu44 and La Trobe, Asia is at La Trobe, Asia. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening. traditions and conventions of our democracy. But what we have found is that if you have a leader who says, you know what? Matt's beautiful daughter just showed up. And so that was a, that was a little voice you heard over there. Sorry, everyone. It wouldn't be an Asia Rising podcast without a guest appearance by one of my daughters. <laughs> um,